0: can turn it on or open it up to Exodus 12. There are some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along you can do that. Exodus 12. This morning we have finally come to the part of the story where Moses and the people walk out of Egypt. If you've read to the end and you've read ahead, you know that Pharaoh still has one more trick up his sleeve. Israel's not exactly out of the woods yet, but they are leaving in this passage, and we've been building up to this. And if you stop at the end of chapter uh, 12, and you just look back, you see Pharaoh come an awful long way. You see that Pharaoh has been brought or taken or moved from defiant contempt to total capitulation through the 10 plagues. And I just want to remind you where he started and then where we're ending up right now. So look at Exodus 5. I'll put this one up on the screen. Exodus 5 says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, this is the very first time they walked into Pharaoh's presence to say, let God's people go. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That's how the whole thing started and then we end a little bit more recently with this verse from Exodus 12 he that is Pharaoh is now summoning Moses and Aaron by night and he says up go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also interesting that twice he says do it as you said Remember, all along the way, Pharaoh kept trying to negotiate. Well, maybe just the men could go. Well, maybe you could leave the children. Well, maybe you could leave the livestock. And finally, in the end, he says, do it just like you want to do it. However you want to go, just go. And in the end, it's almost a a pathetic sort of a sad scene where he's just left begging for a blessing. Before you leave, would you please bless me? Bless me. The man who started off saying, I don't know the Lord. Why would I obey the Lord? Why would I listen to his voice? I will not do what you're asking me to do. Now is begging them to leave, sending them out of the land, and instead begging for this blessing. It's not just Pharaoh. It's also the Egyptians. The people of Egypt were terrified of the Hebrews, and they begged the Hebrews to leave Egypt. And again, I'll show you a couple of verses. This is what we read back in Exodus 1. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were in dread because there were so many of them, and they kept multiplying them, multiplying. and the more they tried to oppress them and murder them and put a lid on their population, the more they kept growing. And they, they said, these people were terrified of these people. Look how it ends up 10 plagues later, Exodus 12. The Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall all be dead and you can imagine the terror you can imagine the terror of the first nine plagues culminating in actual death of somebody in your house and their response is if these people hang around here much longer there's not going to be anything left no crops no plants no river No nothing, no monuments, no Pharaoh, no dynasty, no people. We will be consumed by these people, and they're in dread of them, and they want the people out. That's clear. Here's something that's a little bit less clear, and I just want to acknowledge it. We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about it, but there's debate about the 430 years that you'll find mentioned in Exodus 12, 40 to 41. I gave you a whole bunch of other verses. We're not going to read them. I'm not going to put them up on the screen. We're not going to flip there. You can look at them later if you're interested. There's other verses that seem to talk about 400 years instead of 430 years. And there's other verses that seem to talk about four generations instead of 400 or 430. And sometimes when you add all these passages up, they just don't seem to all fit. And you may get a little confused as you read through it thinking, wait a minute, exactly how long were they there? And when did the timeline start? And all of that. Let me just mention a couple of things if you're interested in this sort of stuff and piecing all these passages together. The first thing you've got to remember is that ancient people were not nearly as concerned with time and being precise with time as we are. That's not just true of ancient people, that's true of people who don't live in the United States. They're just not as concerned with the clock like we are. We live by the clock, and we want things to be by the minute, specific, down to the day, down to the hour, down to the second. We've got it all planned out and regimented out. And people around the world today, and especially people in the past, they're just not all that interested in that. And some of you are saying, amen, I'd like to live in a place like that. I would, I would never be late. I could just be. Would never have to worry about that. Well, they weren't as concerned about it. It doesn't mean that there's mistakes in the Bible. It just means that that wasn't a burning issue for them when they wrote some of these things down. And so the way that they rounded numbers or talked about different things, there's a lot more fluidity there. And all of the passages that you read about when it talks about Israel living in Egypt are broad enough that you can fit them together, and there are theories and explanations of how all these verses fit together. That's not the main point of the passage. I want to acknowledge it so that if you're the kind of person that goes home and does your homework and you dig into this, you think, oh man, there's, I found something in here that there's a mistake, there's something that's not right. It fits. It can all go together. You don't need to panic about that. Our purpose is not decoding Bible mysteries and dates and putting a map together. Our purpose is focusing on the big idea of this passage, which I think is really, really clear. Here it is the big idea this morning. The Lord is always faithful to keep his promises. He is always faithful to keep the promises that he makes to his people. And we're going to read the passage and we're going to talk about the promises that God kept in this section of the story, in this. Uh, part of the, the development of the Exodus, and then we're going to try to apply it and reflect back and say, why does it matter? Why is it important? What difference does it make for us? So we're going to start reading Exodus 12, starting in verse 33, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. The Word of God says this, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had been brought out of Egypt, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. it. shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray. Father, as we look back and remember what you did to save your people, we pray for wisdom. We pray for understanding. Father, we pray for hearts that would be receptive to your word. Father, whatever ideas about you that we've brought into church this morning, whatever concepts we've carried in, Father, we want them to be aligned with the truth of scripture. And Father, if we have ever doubted your faithfulness, if we've ever questioned your faithfulness, If suffering or circumstances have ever made us wonder whether or not you would be faithful to your promise, Father, this morning drive that truth home to our hearts. As we think about the exodus, as we think about the promises that you kept, promises that by our reckoning were long in coming, Father, help us to be mindful and receptive to the idea that you are faithful to always keep your promises. And, Father, help us to understand why that matters and why it makes a difference in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my missionary heroes is a man named William Carey. Since we're taking a world missions offering, I thought it would be good to talk about a missionary this morning. William Carey lived in Great Britain, and God put it in his heart to take the gospel to India. That was not really something that was done in his day. But he thought that it was needed. He thought that it was important. He had heard these tales of ships and commerce and business traveling uh, through India and all around the world. And he said, these people need to hear the good news of Jesus. So he came up with a plan and people laughed at him and people told him to sit down and pipe down and simmer down. It wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't urgent, but he was just compelled to take the gospel to India. He's known today as church historians as the father of the modern missions movement. Just because in his day, people really had sort of lost touch with the idea that we need to be sending people out to the ends of the earth to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And God used William Carey to sort of bring that idea back to the forefront. He sailed from Britain to India in 1793. You should read his biography if you like to read biographies. The the number of things that he accomplished is really remarkable. Just the number of languages that he translated the Bible into just is absolutely mind-blowing. Accomplished so many great things for the Lord. But along the way, if you read that biography, you learn he suffered greatly for his ministry and for the cause of taking the gospel to the people of India. To get to India in 1793, you didn't get out your phone and pull up the Southwest Airlines app and look for flights. You got on a boat, and you rode on that boat for six months. And when he first got on the boat, his wife refused to go with him. And people have criticized him for this, but he just said to his wife, I have to go, and he left her. And the boat was forced to come back. I think that was the providence of God the boat came back and she sort of had second thoughts and they got together on the same page and they all got on the boat and they sailed for 6 months to India the the smallpox vaccine was discovered 3 years after William Carey left for India that means when he went he didn't go down to the local CVS and get you know immunizations and inoculations for all the exotic diseases And it also meant that William Carey and his wife and his kids were sick all the time. There was no treatment for that. You just got sick and then hopefully you got better. But some of them didn't get better. His first wife died in India. He remarried and his second wife also died in India. Several of his children died from sicknesses and various things while he lived in India. And on top of all that, he shows up in India, he starts preaching the gospel, he's he's learning the language, he's trying to share Jesus with people, and it's seven years before anyone gets saved. Seven years of preaching, 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 sticking with it, not giving up. Seven years of nothing before one man was baptized. You look at his life, and you can marvel at the amazing things that he accomplished, but you've got to step back and say, how did, how did you do it? I mean, obviously, we would say God sustained him, God used him, but on a human level, how did you just not crawl in a hole and give up and die? It's amazing the things that he endured, and Kerry said that this is part of the answer. He said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. No matter what his circumstance, no matter what his situation, no matter his suffering, no matter the loss, no matter the tragedy, he said the future is bright because God has made promises to his people and God intends to keep those promises. Listen, a belief that God was faithful to keep his promises Empowered William Carey to do some remarkable things. It sustained him. It changed the way that he lived. It changed the way that he thought. It changed the way that he worshiped. It changed the way that he shared the gospel. It changed the way that he suffered. And I hope that as you look at this story this morning, it's not just an academic walkthrough. We're going to talk about some, some technical things, some debated things, some questionable things, some historical things. But at the end of all of it, I hope it's not just a bunch of nice information. I hope you come away reaffirmed in your belief, God always keeps his promises. And that makes a huge difference in my life And in your life. So let's look at the text and let's talk about three promises that God kept as he brought the people out of Egypt. Number one, God kept his promise that Israel would plunder Egypt. He kept his promise that Israel would plunder Egypt. This was kind of far-fetched. It was far-fetched in the sense that he initially made this promise before they ever went to Egypt, before any of these people were ever born or alive or their grandparents were born or alive. He made it all the way back in Genesis 15 when he was talking to a man named Abraham, whose name was actually Abram at the time. Look what we read in Genesis 15. God speaking to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. If you don't know the end of the story and that's the only promise you're hanging on to, that seems a little bit far-fetched. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that we're not going to live here, but we're going to live there for four centuries and face affliction and oppression, and your plan, your promise is that at the end of all of that, we're going to come out with great possessions. After being afflicted and oppressed, we're going to come out with great wealth. God took the same promise and he gave it to Moses. We talked about it a few weeks back earlier in Exodus when he is sending Moses. And he says, you're going to tell the people, when I, when I say it's time, you're going to tell the people to ask their neighbors for all their stuff. And then you're leaving with all the stuff. And you're going to plunder these people. You have been their slaves. You have been their servants. You have been oppressed. And you are walking out more than whole. You will plunder these people. Last week, I forgot to show you a picture. I kind of felt bad about it. And so I thought I'd throw him up here this week. This is... Ramses II. There's two leading candidates for who was the Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus. A lot of Bible scholars think Ramses II was him. We don't know that for sure. We're not completely certain that this was the guy. And You look at these old statues and you think, oh, a, he was a nice-looking guy. You want to see what he really looked like? Because we have actually found his mummy, and he actually looked exactly like this that 's ramses today, and uh, there 's some color photos online. You can look those up. He actually had red hair, uh, great men are bald. he was bald didn 't have anything up on top, but he had a nice ring of fire around the edge of his head, and uh, he 's got quite the beak, and uh, you know they found his tomb and they dug him up, and that 's exactly what he looks like. Go back to the other picture, the first picture yeah that Not exactly an accurate representation, but that's what he commissioned. And that's what what they came up with. We don't know if this guy was Pharaoh during the Exodus, but it is possible. uh, Maybe somewhere on the scale of possible to probable or likely or somewhere in there. What's interesting is that while Ramses was Pharaoh over Egypt he decided he was known for building. He built things all over Egypt. If you ever get to travel, you can go see all the monuments and all the things and everything that's been excavated. He's known as a great builder. And Ramses decided, we need a new capital. So he built a new capital. Now, if you're Pharaoh and you build a new capital, you got to name the city. What do you think he named it? Ramses sounds good. Let's go with Ramses. Names it after himself. He's a humble guy. And what's interesting is that way back in chapter 1, we read about the Hebrew slaves building cities for Pharaoh, and one of the cities that they built was Ramses. What's also interesting is that here in chapter 12, we read about the same city again. In verse 37, it says, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. I know this is a little bit speculative, but I just want to sort of show you the idea of what's happening here. When God brings the Hebrew slaves out, this is not sneak out the back door in the middle of the night, run for your life because they might come get you. This is Pharaoh, as we read earlier, begging the people to go. Do it your way. Do it just like you said. This is all of the Egyptians saying, you want my my gold? You want my silver? You want my best suit? Whatever you want, take it and leave because we're afraid that we're all going to be dead. This is the people of Israel walking out of Egypt with their backs straight and their head held high and they're not sort of sulking or sneaking out the back door as if no one's going to see it. They march right through the capital city. like This is total defiance From God and his people saying to the Egyptians, four centuries of oppression, but now we're walking out of here and we're walking out of here on our own terms. Not only are we walking out of here on our own terms, but we're walking out of here with all your stuff. We're taking it all with us. This idea of plunder is something that a victorious army would do historically to a defeated army. If you won the battle, you got the stuff. To the victor go the spoils. Everyone knew that. And God says, look, it's not like my people had to fight. I fought for them, but they're my people. And now that they're walking out, they are going to plunder the Egyptians. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15. God said hundreds of years earlier, this is exactly how it was going to happen. It goes all the way back to the early chapters of Exodus. Before Moses ever showed up, God said, this is exactly how it's going to happen. And as far-fetched as it was that the Hebrew slaves would walk out of Egypt with great wealth, that's exactly what happened. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. He's faithful to keep his promises. Second promise. God kept his promise to multiply the people of Israel. To multiply the people. You can look at Genesis 12. That's the first time God made any promise to Abram. And he said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. Old, childless, barren wife, no kids. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Look what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 5. I'll put this one up. It's God brought Abraham outside and he said to him, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, which sort of suggests to you that there was a little bit of a dramatic pause there. Like, go out, look at the stars and count them up. I'll wait. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Again, this is a man who was old whose wife had never been able to have children, who had no hope of offspring, and God is saying to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you. You will have more descendants when it's all said and done than the number of the stars in the heavens. The question is, for our purposes this morning, how many of them walked out? How many of them were there? And I want you to just look in your Bible at Exodus 12, Verse 37, which we just read. Just look at it again. It says, The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So let's dig into that just for a minute and think about it. There's a whole lot of educated people. I was going to call them smart people. I'll just go with educated people. Who say... Even if you have 430 years, you can't get from 70 total, remember there was 70 of them when they came to Egypt, you can't get from 70 total to 600,000 men, even if you have 430 years. I just tell you, you can pretty easily. Do the math and figure it out especially when you go back and you read that God was blessing these people with children, so many children that the Egyptians were alarmed and terrified. The math is really, really not that hard to get to this large number of people where you potentially have 600,000 soldiers plus elderly women, children, and others. So the math is not that hard. Other people acknowledge the math is not that hard, but there's a question about a word in Exodus 12, 37, we read it, it says, in most English translations, just about all the English translations I looked at this week, says 600,000 men on foot. And the question is a Hebrew word that is, uh, I'll put it up on the screen with all the different meanings of it, eleph, eleph is a Hebrew word translated in this passage as thousand, so it says 600 eleph. And that's a legitimate translation. Sometimes the word "lf" means thousand, but sometimes it means cattle. And sometimes it means clan, and sometimes it means division or family or tribe. And you'll find all of these in other verses in the Old Testament. So you've got another group of scholars over here. They say, look, we know the math works. You can get to 600,000. We're not concerned about that. 430 years is plenty of time for them to multiply to that size. The question is, should we translate it as 600,000? Or should we translate it as 600 divisions, 600 fighting squadrons, 600 platoons of the, of the Israelites? And there's a lot of scholars, good Bible-believing scholars, that say it really should carry the idea here of a military division. And that kind of fits with the passage if you think about it. The passage says that God is bringing them out by their hosts. It's another military term. To describe armies, he's bringing them out by their host. It says that twice. It's talking about plunder. The people of Israel are plundering just like a victorious army would do. And so some some scholars say, look, you should really translate this as 600 units or battalions or divisions or you pick the military term. And that means there's probably eh, 10, 20,000 men plus everyone else. We'll round it up and we'll say 50,000 people left total. Now, just I, I want you to think about this, Okay. No one is really arguing about whether or not the Bible is true. We all believe the Bible's true. The question is, how do we take this word, "lf" and translate it depending on the context and the situation? And there's some really smart guys that say it's 600,000 men on foot, and everyone else, you're looking at maybe one and a half, two, possibly three million people leaving. And there's some other guys who take the Bible seriously, and they say, no, you're looking at probably 50, maybe 60,000 people leaving total, complete. There's not a debate about whether the Bible's true. It's a debate about how to translate a word. And in that debate, you might lose sight of the big picture. Okay, Don't lose sight of the big picture. Sometimes you get so far in the weeds, you can't even see the significance of something. All of this started with a man named Abram, who was old and whose wife was barren, and they had never been able to have children. And to that man, God says, I'm going to multiply your offspring. There's going to be a bunch of them. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. And Abram struggles with this, and his wife struggles with it, but God comes through and they have a son, and that son has a son. And this family begins to grow, and when they make their way down to Egypt on the verge of starvation, there's 70 of them. Seventy is miraculous when you think about what you started with. There's 70 people where once there was a barren woman and an old man. And they're oppressed, and they're afflicted. And Pharaoh tries to put his thumb on them and he says, throw the babies in the river, kill them, get rid of them, destroy them, and none of it works. They just continue to grow and they continue to grow. And you come to the end of it when they're getting ready to leave Egypt, I don't care how you translate the word, there's a bunch of them leaving. There's a bunch of people walking out. And you can pick the big number or you can pick the small number, but just remember what we started with. We started with Abram and his wife who couldn't have kids. And remember where we're going. We're not going to 600,000. We're not going to 2 million or 3 million. We're going to count the stars in the sky. That's how many I'm going to give you. This is going to be your offspring, more numerous than the stars in the sky. So you can pick the number, and you can argue about it and debate and have fun with that. The point is God is keeping his promise He's not kept it as if he's done, but he is keeping his promise to this man named Abraham, and he is multiplying his family so that in spite of starvation and in spite of being enslaved for four centuries, thousands of people are walking out of this nation. Why? Because God is keeping his promise. He is always faithful to keep his promise. The last promise in the passage I want you to see is this. God kept his promise to bless all of the nations through Abraham. All the nations. You can go back and look at Genesis 12. God says all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. You can read the same idea in Genesis 17. It says Abraham is going to be the father of a multitude of nations. There's this big view right from the get-go with Abraham. We're talking to one man only, but God has this big view in sight, and he says this is going to be for the whole earth, the whole world, all the peoples, all the families, all the nations, all the languages. We're going to do something that benefits everybody, and we're going to do it through you. Which brings up an interesting detail when you read the passage and you come to Exodus 12, verse 38. Verse 38 we read that a mixed multitude also went up with them. Meaning, you pick the number of Hebrew slaves that you want to assign, they're all going up, and along with them is a whole bunch of non-Hebrew people that they finally get the lesson and they take the hint. After all the plagues and the night of the Passover, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Hebrews are leaving. Do we want to stay here? with gods and a leader who are powerless to save us, or do we want to go with these people who clearly are worshiping the one true God? And a whole bunch of people inside the nation of Egypt say, we're going with the slaves. We're leaving. There's a mixed multitude. There's Egyptians that say, we're going with these folks. There's other people who are from other nationalities possibly who are also enslaved in Egypt. They say, we're going. Later in the book of Leviticus, we read about people who were sort of half one ethnicity, half another. We read about a a man who had an Egyptian father and a Hebrew mother. Some of those people say, we're going. We're not staying. It was this mixed multitude that goes up from the land. You say, why does that matter? Because God promised from the very beginning, this is not just an ethnically Jewish thing. You don't have to have Jewish DNA to benefit from this. You just have to come into the covenant family, which is why right after you read, right after you read the verse that says a mixed multitude went up with them, we read more instructions about the Passover, and you're like, we already read about the Passover. It's done. Why are you telling us more instructions about the Passover? It's because God, through Moses, is looking at this mixed multitude going up, and he's saying, well, who's with us? and who's not with us and who can celebrate the Passover and who can't celebrate the Passover and the big idea the big takeaway is this anyone was welcome to leave Egypt and go with the people to the promised land anyone any race any ethnicity any religion anybody you were free to pack up and to go with them just like Rahab does later she leaves Jericho she says these people are crazy your God is the true God I'm with you guys just like Ruth does centuries later she says wait a minute wait a minute My gods are not real gods. I'm going to worship the Lord, and I'm going with you guys. You people are my people now. Anyone was free to do that. But you had to make a decision. There was no fence riding. There was no trying to play at both sides and see which one came out better in the end. God says, if they're circumcised, they can come. They can keep the Passover. They can be part of you. But no one else gets to participate in that. You say, well, that seems like a kind of arbitrary, and if you're male, a little bit of a mean barrier to coming in. Why did he have to pick that? Why couldn't it have been like, get your ear pierced or something? Why? What was the promise? You're going to have offspring. You're going to have children. And I'm going to give you, Abram, this physical mark in the skin, without being too graphic, that pictures procreation. Because even in your old age, you're going to have kids. That's the promise. And I'm going to multiply you, meaning there's going to be more of you and more of you and more of you. And you're going to carry around in your body this picture of procreation, and it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a reminder that you believe in the promises of God. It's a dividing mark between all those who don't worship and serve and trust Yahweh and those who do worship and serve and trust Yahweh. So I don't care what your DNA is. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what language you speak. If you'll come and embrace the promises of God, you're in. You can come with us. You can be part of this mixed multitude. And it's beginning to unfold how in the world is God going to bless the entire world through Abraham. Well, here you get a glimpse of it. All the nations are invited to participate. You and I live way in the future from what we're reading, and I hope you see the fulfillment in Jesus. It's not about a mark in the flesh anymore. It's about faith in the Messiah, the one that the whole thing was pointing to all along. Look, when you come to our new member class, we don't need to see your DNA, Ancestry 23, you know, whatever kit and lineage and where you come from. We don't give a flip about that. I don't care where you were born. We're not interested in any of that stuff. What we're interested in is, do you trust in the Messiah? Do you trust in the true offspring of Abraham? Because it's all pointing to him, and there is salvation to be found in no other name. So I don't care where you come from. I don't care what religion you've practiced. I don't care what your skin color is or who your parents are or any of that stuff. What matters is, do you trust in Jesus? And that's beginning to play out all the way back here in Exodus 12. God kept his promise to bless all the nations through Abraham. Now, two thoughts and we'll be done trying to apply this to our lives. The first one is this. God wants his people to corporately remember all that he's done in accomplishing our salvation. He wants us to corporately remember, meaning To do it together. Should you do it on your own? Of course. Should you do it in your home with your family? Of course. But God's interested in more than that because he says in this passage, all of Israel is to keep the Passover forever. You read the same instructions earlier in chapter 12. Do it forever. Don't ever stop doing it. Do it forever. Remember, remember, don't forget, you do it together every single year. Think about this. There was really only one Passover, the first one. That was the only night that anyone's life was in danger. All those other Passovers that rolled around, there was no threat of death passing through the camp and killing the firstborn. That was done. That was a one-time thing in Egypt. But they went through the same stuff every year, over and over and over, every single year. Why? To remember To look back and to say, this is what God has done for us. Why is it so important for you to come to church regularly? It's because you need to remember. It's because you need to be reminded. Look, when when we meet in this room, we tend to sing the exact same songs over and over and over again. And we talk about the same things over and over and over again. Look. I'm kind of like a, a broken record. You listen long enough, you know what's coming next. I don't have anything new to say to you. I don't have anything inventive, like I'm gonna pull something out one of these days, and you're gonna say, oh, well, who knew? Like it's the same stuff over and over and over and over again. Why? That's how God designed it. That we come together as his people corporately to remember. This is who God is. He's holy. We're going to sing about that over and over and over again. This is who we are as sinful people. We have fallen short. And this is what God has done to reconcile us to himself. He sent his son to die for our sins on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he calls us to turn from our sin and believe in Jesus. We're going to talk about that over and over and over again because that's how God intends to keep his people faithful and trusting in his promises is through reminder. This is the idea you see in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll put it up on the screen. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible says you need to keep meeting together because you need the encouragement to press on and to keep believing and to keep trusting. And when your life stinks and your circumstances are rotten and you feel like God's completely forgotten all the promises that he's ever made to you in his word, you need to gather together with God's people and you need to be reminded. God is always faithful. To keep his promises. This is why so many times you see people who maybe it's because of health, or maybe it's because of busyness, or maybe it's because of children's activities, or maybe it's because of any number of things, that church becomes less of a priority, and spiritually they begin to struggle. It's because they don't have this built in reminder do it over and over and over again. Look, you see the same thing play out in the Old Testament with the Passover. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know that every now and then you read a verse that says, oh, and they celebrated the Passover. They hadn't done that for 50 years. They hadn't done that for 100 years. They hadn't done that since the days of King whoever. Joshua and and the people celebrate a Passover, and it tells you in the text, they hadn't done that since they left Egypt. Why did they struggle with whining so much and complaining and fighting and, and bickering and all the mess you read about when they left Egypt? Well, part of the problem is they didn't fall into the routine of reminding themselves. God sets it up so that corporately we gather together and we remember what he's done to save us as his people. Last idea is this. God wants his people to rest in the truth that he is faithful to keep his promises. There should be rest for you when this sinks into your bones, when it gets driven down deep in your heart. I'm going to let you look at Hebrews 6 later today. You can read it on your own. In Hebrews 6, the author of Hebrews is talking actually about Abraham. And he's talking about all the promises that God made to Abraham, as far-fetched as they seemed when he first made them. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, God swore, and there's two unchangeable things that make it certain that he's going to come through on his word. One, it's impossible for God to tell a lie. And two, his character never changes. And so by these two things, the impossibility of God telling a lie and the impossibility of God ever changing, we know that we can rest in his promises. Abraham could rest in God's promises because he knew God would be the same today as he was yesterday, as he will be forever. There's no change or turn or shadow with him. So we know that he's going to keep his promises. And the author of Hebrews says, because that's true, that God never changes and he can't tell a lie, that he's going to keep his word, he's going to be faithful. The author of Hebrews says, we have an anchor for our soul. We have something that connects us to truth and to reality. Something that keeps us held fast when life is crazy all around us. And that anchor is Jesus, the great high priest. You can read about it in Hebrews 6. He's the great high priest. He lived for us and he died for us and he defeated death for us. And because all of those things are true and because God always keeps his promise, we have this anchor that no matter what happens in life, no matter how bad the storms of life may be, we're held fast By Jesus, our great high priest. The faith of Hebrews 6 is the faith of William Carey, who said, The future is as bright as the promises of God. If God has made a promise to his people, he intends to keep it. He always keeps his promises, and that lets us rest. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to question. We don't have to wonder what what in the world God has forgotten me. He doesn't forget, and He always keeps His promises. I'm going to ask you to bow and I'm going to pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the book of Exodus. We study this old, old story, and we think about the things that you've done in history to save your people, and we are amazed. And we're humbled. And Father, we acknowledge there's some things in here that are hard to understand and hard to piece together and hard to make sense of. But Father, the big picture is clear. You are always faithful to keep the promises that you make. Father, Israel plundered Egypt. And you multiplied this family despite the oppression that they faced. And God, you used them to bring blessing to all the nations. Father, we're grateful for Jesus, for the offspring of Abraham, the son of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, who is the fulfillment of all the things that we read in this this ancient story. And Father, we're thankful that Jesus is an anchor for our soul. Father, that we know because of his life and his death and his resurrection that you will always keep your promise. You will be faithful. Father, help that to sink into our hearts. Father, we pray this morning for those who are here who maybe are not connected to you through Jesus. They've never trusted in the the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus the Messiah. And Father, we pray that today they would see clearly what you have done in Jesus to save us. Father, be honored as we sing together. As we lift our voices and respond, as we praise you simply for who you are, for who you are today, who you have always been, and who you will always be. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.